When the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, the parents of Jesus brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And inspired by the Spirit, he came into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. For mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, and for glory to thy people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them, and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is set for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is spoken against, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, that thoughts out of many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was of a great age, having lived with her husband seven years from her virginity, and as a widow till she was eighty-four. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she gave thanks to God and spoke of him to all who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own city, Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. The Gospel of the Lord. seated. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. As we continue to encounter the luminous mysteries of the Epiphany, the revealing of Jesus Christ as the light of the world and the Savior of not just the Jewish people, but of all nations, Gentiles as well, we arrive at this incredibly rich and pivotal moment in the life of Christ, his presentation at the temple. There is so much happening here as Christ is shown forth as the fulfillment of Israel's life. Uh, we won't be able to get at all of the layers in this text, but we do have to go back in order to understand it. So we'll get in the time machine and we'll go back into the Exodus as Moses has led the people out of Egypt 
And the Lord has fought for Israel by opening up the Red Sea for them to pass through unharmed as a prefigurement of baptism. They then come to camp at the base of Mount Sinai, the mountain of the Lord where Moses receives the law. And one of the largest chunks of the revelation that Moses receives is a revelation of the heavenly worship that happens ceaselessly in the throne room of God. And in that revelation, God instructed Moses to have a tabernacle built using the heavenly blueprints for its construction. The Lord tells Moses, I shall be known to you to speak to you, and there in the tabernacle I shall give directions to the children of Israel, and I shall be sanctified in my glory. This was to be the place where God would dwell with his people. At the end of Exodus, after a lot of detailed instruction for the gathering and the fashioning of the liturgical implements for the tabernacle, we're told that the cloud of God's presence covered the tabernacle of testimony, and the tabernacle was filled with the Lord's glory. But Moses was not able to enter the tabernacle of testimony because the cloud overshadowed it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, the cloud was above the tabernacle by day, and fire was over it by night. If you've been here for any amount of time, you've no doubt heard me say that this Revelation of God as cloud and fire is one of the paradigmatic revelations of who God is in the Old Testament. He illumines and confounds. He is not easily understood or captured by human understanding. Generations later, when Solomon completes the temple in Jerusalem, the dream of his father David, we're told in 2 Chronicles that as the priests are doing their liturgical work for this dedication, and they're singing the psalms, that the house was filled with a cloud of the Lord's glory, so the priests could not continue ministering because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. Throughout Israel's history, the tabernacle and subsequently the temple was the center. That's why we could just sing that Jerusalem is the center of the earth. They weren't idiots at geography. They knew that it's not literal. What they mean is that the dwelling place of God is what everything in the world revolves around. And this was the center of their life together. The temple and the tabernacle were liminal spaces. A threshold from the material world, what Genesis 1 calls earth, that peered into the dwelling place of God. Heaven. The holy of holies. It's a place where Israel ritually enacted God's salvation of his people a place where the people were put back in right relationship with God, a place where individuals could come and express the entire range of human emotion and experience, joy, gratitude, sorrow, and anger. We'll meet just one such person in just a moment as we continue with this little history lesson. The temple... The tabernacle that prefigures it were where every generation of Hebrew parents would come to offer a sacrifice after the birth of a child. This act itself is a ritual retelling of the curse and promise of childbirth given to Eve after the rebellion. It's a liturgical reminder of the messianic hope that one day, born of a woman, 
There would be one who would come and crush the serpent's head and reverse the curse, undoing death. And after centuries-long cycles of anticipation, disillusionment, and rebellion where each generation seeks and fails to find the child of promise, eventually God's glory is seen leaving the temple. This is an act that is about a billion times more unsettling than if in our lifetime a president were to be assassinated and just no one took his place. The Oval Office just sat empty. The prophets promise that God will restore his people, but the situation is bleak to the point of utter darkness because the cloud of God's presence has left. And as we open the pages of the gospel accounts, we are met with a young virgin Israelite woman, a pious and prayerful young woman who is told by an angelic messenger that the Lord is with her, that she will conceive and bear a son who will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his ancestor David, and of his kingdom there will be no end. If you're like me and you grew up Hearing this story read each Christmas, we need to undomesticate these stories in our minds. This announcement in the visitation to Mary is the first light of dawn after a centuries-long dark night. Throughout the birth narratives and into the epiphany scene of the Magi coming to pay homage to the child Christ, we are given a set of rich linguistic and symbolic declarations and actions from choirs of angels to the highly symbolic gifts made for royal burial, frankincense, myrrh, and gold. And here, at the presentation, we experience another set of rich linguistic and symbolic words and actions. This act of bringing the child Christ to the temple, as you heard read, was in accordance with the Levitical law. On the eighth day of a boy's life, he was circumcised. And on the 40th day, the mother was to present herself before the priest with a sacrifice that would be made clean, or that would be made rather for the atonement of sin, and she is made ritually clean. Now, if you compare Leviticus 12 with what's happening here in Luke 2, you can see the, the sort of tension that the early church fathers are caught in. Because Luke's very clear that the whole family goes up for cleansing. He doesn't single Mary out. And for the fathers, Mary was not going for some special atonement due mostly to the special circumstances of the virginal birth. This is a different kind of birth. This is not the time or the place to steer down that rabbit trail. But suffice it to say, it's important to recognize there is more happening in this scene than just the cleansing required of Leviticus 12. Joseph and Jesus both accompany Mary, and so at some level, this visit is about more than just purification rites. In fact, it can be seen echoed in the story of Hannah, who came to the temple to pour out her heart to the Lord. 
And then later, when she was given a child, the thing that she longed for, she brings Samuel and presents him before the Lord to be enrolled in the Lord's service. It is no small thing that we meet a woman named, in the Hebrew version of Anna, Hannah, as Christ is brought to the temple. Hannah, the mother of Samuel, who pleaded with the Lord for a child, was granted her request and in turn gave her miraculous child given to a woman whose womb was closed and she gives him back to the Lord's service. There's even more than that. We can clearly see that Christ, in humbling himself to take on human flesh, was not born to famous, wealthy, or powerful people. Again, if you read in Leviticus 12, the offering to be brought for a new child is a lamb. Or, if you are too poor, you can bring what Mary and Joseph bring, showing us that they are indeed poverty-stricken people. And of course, with the eyes of faith, we can see that they have indeed brought the lamb as well. Embedded in the ritual of Jewish life in bringing a sacrifice for a newborn child with special rules surrounding the firstborn male child is a recognition of the words of Solomon that we quote at the offertory every week, right? What, what the Jewish people are doing in bringing their sacrifice for the birth of a new child is what Solomon sums up for us when we say, all things come from you, O Lord, and of your own have we given you. These children are gifts from the Lord. And in religious societies like ancient Israel, where all aspects of human life are seen primarily in their relationship to God as Lord and Master, it becomes obvious that these liminal spaces within human existence, the very perpetuation of human life in conception and birth, must be and should be understood within this same relationship to the divine. All things come from you, O Lord. Each birth is at some level connected to both the curse and the promise given to Eve. And here today we bear witness to the fulfillment of a ritual that stretches back all the way to Abraham and Isaac, and Christ is the fulfillment of all of it. Christ is the true temple, the place of God's dwelling. He is the true high priest, offering right worship unto God, and he is the Holocaust's true victim, the lamb slain before the foundations of the world. Right? The, the, the Holocaust is a burning of a lamb that the parents would have brought. And Mary and Joseph, though they bring the two doves because of their poverty, they also bring the lamb, and Christ is revealed as this sacrificial lamb. Indeed, what is happening here is Christ... The one that John tells us who was in the beginning with God but is now tabernacled among us. Christ, the archetypal temple, the true temple, is being brought as a sacrificial offering into the temple. That is what it means to be presented to the Lord. The cloud and the fire are now swaddled, squawking and eating. Christ, the very presence of God, re-enters the temple so that he might give his life as a ransom for many. 
In another 30 years, his closest disciples will see him clothed in cloud and light, just as he was at Sinai. But for now, his illumination is seen only by those to whom the Spirit chooses to reveal it. Simeon, whose name is a Greek homonym for the word that we translate as sign, has been directed by the Spirit to enter the temple where he takes salvation in his arms, cradling the light that will illuminate the Gentiles and bring glory to Israel. Simeon, the sign, sees the sign. And for millennia now, the church has hymned the words of Simeon, for it is through the eyes of Simeon that we see Christ, a light for revelation. As St. Sophronius said about this very feast, the true light has come. The light that enlightens every man who is born into this world. Let all of us, my brothers and sisters, be enlightened and made radiant by this light. Let all of us share in its splendor and be so filled with it that no one remains in the darkness. Let us be shining ourselves as we go together to meet and to receive with the aged Simeon the light whose brilliance is eternal. Rejoicing with Simeon, let us sing a hymn of thanksgiving to God, the Father of the light, who sent the true light to dispel the darkness and to give us all a share in his splendor. Through Simeon's eyes, we too have seen the salvation of God, which he prepared for all the nations and revealed as the glory of the new Israel, which is ourselves. As Simeon was released from the bonds of this life when he had seen Christ, so we too were at once freed from our old state of sinfulness. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.